From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Today, we're exploring how governments, corporations, and law enforcement try to manage big data, privacy, and security. Later on in the program, we'll have an international town hall discussion on the issue. But first, a story on how big data is becoming ubiquitous. So I've been sort of obsessed with license plate readers for a few years now. Sarus Faravar is an editor with the technology news website Ars Technica. He says license plate readers typically sit on the roof of police cars, scanning up to 60 plates a second, cross-referencing those scans with a hot list of plates of wanted or stolen vehicles. The problem is, is that it turns out that only a tiny fraction of plates that are scanned are so-called hot. You know, they match that hot list. So in the case of Oakland, where I live, well over 99% of cars that are scanned are normal, law-abiding cars that belong to citizens like me and my friends, you know, who aren't doing anything. And yet the Oakland Police Department, up till recently, had retained that information for many years. The fear is that with enough data points, with enough instances where your car was captured, you might be revealing something about that person that the government may not already know and I would argue, you know, shouldn't necessarily know without good reason. Keep in mind, this technology is used in cities large and small around America and overseas as well. So I filed public records requests with the city of Oakland uh, asking for all license plate reader records that had ever been collected. They came back with 4.3 million records of all license plates that had ever been scanned by the Oakland Police Department over the course of roughly four years. And that was pretty shocking to me. By simply matching a license plate to its driver, anyone with this data could learn an astonishing amount of personal information. All it took for Faravar was observing clusters of data points on a map. I presented this tool to Dan Kolb, who is a sitting Oakland City Council member, and Knowing nothing else about him other than his license plate number that he gave me, I showed him on a map and I said, I bet that you live on this particular block in North Oakland because I can see that your car has been scanned something like 30 times on this one block. And he said, yeah, that is exactly where I live. And he found that a little bit, you know, surprising. Of course, it's not just where you live. The data can help pinpoint where you shop, where you worship, or which bars you go to. This is kind of perfectly normal behavior, but nevertheless, you might not necessarily want the police to have a record of you engaging in that behavior. After Faravar's article came out, the Oakland police changed their policy of storing license plate data. Now they only keep it for six months unless the plates are under investigation. Faravar says it's a step in the right direction, but still, he says, the whole experience was a bit unnerving. Just because the government has the ability to do that, in my opinion, doesn't necessarily mean that they should be able to, I hope that we can uh, come to a better understanding as to what the appropriate limits are. We are struggling with the perennial problem of how to both be safe and to be free. Deidre Mulligan is an associate professor at UC Berkeley School of Information. She researches the larger ramifications of seemingly small intrusions. You may be saying, oh, well, I'm actually okay with the government understanding this about me or sharing this information, but what individuals are really 
poor at understanding is the collective effects of that aggregate data and how it may be leveraged and used and the long-term effects on what it means because data knowledge is power. And all of that amassing of information about citizens changes the balance between the citizens and the government or the citizens and the corporation. We believe that privacy is important for the formation of ideas, for intimacy, for freedom of association, and that all of those things are constitutive democracy. Today on America Abroad, we're looking at this tension between data, national security, and privacy, and how it's having a major impact on how both governments and businesses function. Recently, Apple has been entangled in a very public dispute with the FBI over whether or not the company should be obliged to unlock an iPhone used by San Bernardino shooter Syed Farouk. A California judge has ordered Apple to develop and install software to help the FBI break into Farouk's phone. Apple CEO Tim Cook has refused to comply. He says the creation of a so-called backdoor would be a threat to everyone's data security. He said it would be the software equivalent of cancer. The tech world is split on this. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg supports Apple, but Bill Gates told Bloomberg News he isn't so sure. I do believe that, that with the right safeguards, there are cases where the government, on our behalf, like stopping uh, terrorism, which could get worse in the future, that, that that is valuable. Many Americans agree. According to the Pew Research Center, about half of those surveyed think Apple should unlock the iPhone, while 38 percent say the device should remain locked. Of course, the issue of how to protect both individual privacy and national security goes well beyond the borders of the United States. Lawmakers in Europe are also taking new measures to broaden government access to big data. Reporter Jennifer Strong takes a look at what's been done overseas and here in the U.S. and what may lie ahead. To appreciate where we are right now, you've got to go back a few years to 2013. That's when Oregon Senator Ron Wyden asked the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, this question on national television. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. You see, that statement wasn't true, and an intelligence worker decided to tell the world by leaking secret documents he stole from the U.S. government. Years later, Edward Snowden remains one of the most controversial names in Washington. Kevin Bankston directs the Open Technology Institute at New America, a public policy think tank. There is no question whether you believe him a hero or a traitor or you think that's a stupid question, which is my opinion. The release of those documents prompted a substantial policy debate about security and liberty and privacy that we were not having previously. Zach Goldman says there's another aspect to it. He directs the Center on Law and Security at NYU. He's also a former special assistant to the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Department of Defense. He says the leak that got the most attention was already out in the public record. In 2006, an Associated Press article described the telephone metadata program. And information about what's now known as the Section 702 surveillance program was first leaked in 2005. Goldman says it means something different to us now. The iPhone hadn't come about yet. Uh, it wasn't released until 2007. 
But today, many of us carry incredibly powerful mini computers in our pockets that have the potential at least to record everything that we do at every moment of the day. So I think that leads to a certain degree of sensitivity to these issues that didn't exist in the past. The Snowden leaks led a court to strike down part of the Patriot Act and with it that NSA phone program. The USA Freedom Act replaced it, and while the merits of that law remain hotly debated on Capitol Hill, recent terror attacks are adding urgency to the call from law enforcement for help accessing data. Here's former FBI Assistant Director Chris Swecker speaking to CNBC. The FBI and other agencies are tasked with preventing the next terrorist attack, finding that unicorn, if you will, and preventing it from happening. So they need all the tools they can get. Also up for debate, what role should businesses play? Companies possess all kinds of data useful to prosecutors, like text messages, photos, and call history, and yet... If the devices are encrypted in such a way that neither the companies nor law enforcement agencies can get access to it. Some of the most valuable evidence against some of the most heinous criminals will be unable to be used in their prosecution. Chris Wecker says he feels encryption technology goes too far when it thwarts law enforcement. There should be no safe havens for bad guys, for terrorists, for kidnappers, for organized crime. But tech companies argue weak encryption puts everyone at risk. That's why Apple is fighting the government in court. Zach Goldman. There are a series of court fights going on right now that will ultimately determine the extent to which companies like Apple will be forced to assist law enforcement agencies or even to build their products in such a way that law enforcement agencies will be able to access the information when the companies are served with lawful legal process like a search warrant. Since the 90s, Congress has required phone companies build their systems in a way that's helpful to investigators. Tech companies do the opposite. Encryption is installed by default into widely used products, including the iPhone. This makes it harder for hackers to take private information. It also makes it harder for governments, and that's no accident. The Snowden leaks revealed that intelligence agencies were hacking Google. I read it in the Washington Post. That's Eric Schmidt on C-SPAN. He's chairman of Google's parent company, Alphabet. The fact that it had been done so directly and documented in the documents that were leaked was really a shock to the company. One of the greatest costs of the NSA's programs has been that loss of trust. Kevin Bankston. We have now seen billions of dollars lost as foreign customers have lost faith in the U.S. companies, are trying to move their data out of U.S. companies. Countries regulate data in different ways. A deal called Safe Harbor allowed international companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Apple to move information back and forth between servers. That is until recently, when a court struck it down, citing those Snowden leaks as proof it violates European privacy rights. Lawmakers put a new measure in place in early February called the Privacy Shield, but it's too soon to say whether the same things that doomed Safe Harbor will eventually kill it too. And while the response to the Snowden leaks here in the U.S. led to more limits on government surveillance powers and a partial rollback of the Patriot Act, Kevin Bankston says the opposite is true in Europe and elsewhere. You see France after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, passing a massive new surveillance bill that goes much farther than U.S. law. You see the U.K. right now debating and likely to pass a new law that goes far beyond what U.S. law authorizes. Something civil libertarians can be optimistic about is transparency. 
Both here and abroad, American companies have been gaining more leeway in disclosing information requests from government, pushing the merits of those requests out into the public debate. Still, much remains unresolved. If there's anything certain about this question of privacy versus security, it's that the courts, lawmakers, and executives on both sides of the Atlantic won't have it settled anytime soon. For America Abroad, I'm Jennifer Strong. Coming up, we'll hear international experts in cybersecurity, civil liberties, and the tech industry discuss the challenges of big data. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. From Public Radio International, you're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. We're calling this episode Online Data, Information, and Privacy. While each of us has a sense of what kinds of things we want to keep in our life private, just how that works in our increasingly connected world is complicated. And different countries have different ideas. To find out more about that, we held an international town hall. It brought together cybersecurity, policy, and law experts, along with privacy activists and business representatives. They spoke to us from two hubs of tech innovation, Austin, Texas, home to Dell Computers and a wave of new startups, and Berlin, Germany, one of Europe's emerging high-tech centers. We should mention this town hall was taped before the FBI and Apple dispute over encryption. But as you'll hear, what was discussed in our event relates directly to that debate and many other timely issues. Our hosts for the discussion were Nathan Bernier of public radio station KUT in Austin and Renuka Ryasam with NPR Berlin. Joining me... KUT Studios here in Studio 1A is Benjamin Wittes. He's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, and he's co-founder and editor-in-chief of the national security blog Lawfare. Welcome to you, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. I'm also pleased to welcome Kristen Eikenser. She's a visiting assistant professor at UCLA School of Law with a background in national security law issues with a focus on cybersecurity. Welcome to you as well, Kristen. Thanks very much for having me. So uh, my first question is uh, to both of you. Uh, I'll, I'll get you to answer first, Ben, because you're sitting closer to me. But we live in a, in a post-Snowden era now where Americans are aware that the government has, has an enormous capacity to look at their data. We also live in an era where the threat from terrorism is still very much present. So broadly, I mean, how do we balance the idea of, of safety versus privacy? Well, so I, I think the traditional American answer to that question is rules, and that you don't try to limit government's capacity. Government develops whatever capacities to collect and process information that it can. But you have these very detailed sets of rules that in the United States are, I mean, I think neurotically detailed, and that involve all three branches of government. You have Congress, which passes them. You have the executive branch, which refines them through a whole series of implementing rules and regulations. And then you have the judiciary, which in different ways, depending on the different forms of surveillance in question, you know, gets involved to supervise either individual wiretap requests or programmatic requests. And so having rules that are enforceable and known is the core answer. One of the really interesting problems that has arisen in the wake of the Snowden questions is whether those people believe in those rules anymore and whether we think those rules are adequate or not, and whether people in other countries 
who clearly don't think those rules are adequate, whether and how much the United States cares about their opinion. Right. And uh, Christian, I want to get the same question. But first, I think we need to define the term big data because we're going to be using it a lot today. What do you use it to mean? I mean, I think big data, it's exactly what it says. In some ways, it's self-defining. It is the accumulation of data from all sorts of sources. There are some sources that everyone is sort of aware of. People know they generate email. They know they generate text messages and, and voice traffic. But they're also, it's getting in now very much the Internet of Things. And there are a lot of devices that are now networked and they're generating data about people that people don't necessarily even realize exist. So it's partly in talking about the concept of big data, this tremendous generation of new information about people. But it's also getting into questions about what that data is being used for. And that brings us to that privacy security balance. I know it's a big question, but can you give me your quick take? I like Ben's point about rules, but I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where you set rules and we're done with the debate. You fixed it. It's going to be a long and ongoing process. And on the question of rules, I think rules are great and it's important that we have enforceable rules. But Ben was alluding to this at the end of his comments when he said, you know, how much does the United States care about the uh, impact of the rules it sets on people abroad? And I think there are very serious debates about who's in the room and who has a voice in setting some of these rules. Thank you very much, Kristen. I'm sure our friends in Berlin have something to say on this as well. Uh, Renuka, tell us about your guests. Thanks, Nathan. So directly to my left, I've got Leslie Kidd-Rabenborg, who is with Microsoft, and she um, covers a consumer business in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. And then here in the middle, we've got Maya Indraganesh at the Tactical Technology Collective. Welcome to you both. Um, and finally, here at the end, we have Felix Naumann, who's at the Hassel Plattner Institute from Potsdam. So welcome to you all, and thanks for being here. Thank you. And so, Felix, maybe we can start with you. I think Benjamin laid out some context of um, what the debate is like in the U.S., and maybe you can uh, provide some context into um, how things have evolved here in Europe. Yeah, sure, I can. Um, first, let me extend a little bit to what Kristen said uh, on what big data is. I think it is important to point out that there's a lot of data out there but it means more, it means the text, it means the photos, it means the metadata. So it's not just a record in a database, it's much more that is meant. And also uh, the analytics, so what can we do with the data is certainly part of it. So in my view, data privacy, or in German, Datenschutz, which is supposedly very strong and very important here in Germany, has become somewhat of an abstract notion. So everybody says, yes, data privacy, I need that, I want that but I'm convinced that not many people actually know why they want it or what actually could happen if that privacy is given up. It's a very abstract thing. And Leslie, maybe you can provide some context into sort of how the legal protections and the regulations have evolved, and maybe you can uh, provide some context into what got us there. Some of what we're looking at in terms of a new general data protection regulation which people call the GDPR, and a new safe harbor, are all sort of consequences of some of these laws that were in place um, being re-examined now in a completely sort of new context because of Snowden, but also because of the terrorist attacks and maybe sure. because even going back as far as 9-11, 2001, I would say. That makes sense. And I think, you know, we, we're talking a lot, or we have talked a lot about what governments have done in some of these top-down regulations. And I think, Maya, your group comes at it from a different approach. And maybe you can first tell us what tactical tech is and a little bit about how individuals and consumers can protect themselves in sort of this era of big data. Tactical tech is an international NGO. Um, we support activists, journalists, human rights defenders 
to use information and technology in their advocacy and activism. And so um, in the context of the, what we call the politics of data, or the politics of information technology, we try to sort of fill the, the gaps from a consumer and individual perspective. What does it mean to be an everyday person in the sort of quantified society that we live in? Uh, what does it mean to have all of your metadata floating out there? I can think of an analogy. The move towards organic food and slow food, for example, is a response to what we know about industrialized food production. And I think we're trying to do that when it comes to digital technology and information, to say, this is how it works, and you can actually make different choices. And there are tools and technologies to do that um, as, as an individual who maybe wants to care about privacy and data. It looked like you had another question there in Berlin. Yeah, hello, my name is Martin, and I'm so into digital leadership, and I'm also part of the entrepreneurial scene here in Berlin. When we talk about rules, what kind of rules, what kind of laws, for what? Um, there's a great book by a German researcher, and she's also a founder for a tech company, and she said, well, if you really want to do big data, you need data scientists. And worldwide, there are just a couple of people with PhDs worked so far in this field. They really, really know what they talk about when they use that. So what we talk about here is really a technology we have no clue really about what it is about and what is happening with that. And she compares it with a nuclear bomb. This is really dangerous, what we talk about here. So I want to give uh, Felix Naumann at the Hassel Pastner Institute a chance to respond. I would, first of all, of course, agree that, that uh, data science and big data management is a very, very complex field. But I would also claim that there are more than a few PhDs around who really know what they're doing. I think the, the problem with big data is that you need many fields working together. And these fields are old fields like information retrieval or machine learning uh, fields or artificial intelligence fields. So you basically need a whole bunch of these people to work together. And there are many organizations, uh, industry or uh, commercial organizations, but also government organizations that do apply these strange things. So I don't think that there's this problem that the organizations don't know what they're doing. I think the problem is more that we don't know what these organizations are doing. Christian, you know, you're someone who, who advocates for, for privacy protections, and we just heard from Maya, who kind of talked about how not everyone understands all of the data that is being collected. Can you talk about the challenge of, I guess, allowing people to have a say about something they may not completely understand? So I think just because people don't necessarily understand the technical side of the, some of these issues doesn't mean that they don't have very uh, strong views, in fact, on how their data should be used and what should be able to be determined from the data that they're producing. We have some questions from the audience here in Berlin, so please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I'm Rolf Schnell. I'm teaching uh, at the Free University in Berlin. I'm German. My wife is from Texas, uh, and I've been to Austin. And after uh, all the revelations, I think it has become clear that there are all sorts of rules and regulations, but the people who have been in the business have not always been following the rules and regulations, but have bent them, have developed them. But I understand, if I'm right, that this uh, presidential directive and the follow-up uh, variations, in fact, operate totally outside this mechanism. So that seems to me to indicate that uh, democratic control over there is not much better than what we have with our control committee at our parliament here in, in Germany, for instance. Thank you. Can we get a re quick response uh, on that from Benjamin Wittes, the Brookings Institution? Uh, first of all, uh, you're correct that there is a category of activity uh, under 12333 that is not covered by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. However, uh, what is not correct in the premise of the question is the idea that 
the Snowden revelations reveal widespread breaking of the rules. Uh, in fact, what's striking about the Snowden revelations is that it shows an agency that has this uh, kind of amazing compliance with systems associated with whatever rules it's given. Now, it is true that many people object to the rules and many people look at our rules and say, hey, that's uh, many Americans look at it and say it's too easy to spy on U.S. persons, and many non-Americans look at it and say it's really too easy to spy on you know, Germans or Brazilians. Or, but uh, one thing you do not see in the Snowden revelations is a broad sense that the rules were not respected. I'd love to put that to uh, Greg Nojim, another member of our audience. Uh, he's from the Center for Democracy and Technology. Greg. We do have good rules in the United States. They work pretty well for the Americans who are here, and they work pretty well for the non-Americans who are here. But we don't have those rules for surveillance conducted outside the United States. We have very different rules. They have nothing to do with um, laws passed by Congress. They have everything to do with an executive order that says that any activity or any intention of a foreign person is a relevant foreign intelligence reason to collect the communication. So Berlin, don't be misled by these comments about rules. Ben? So I have to respond to that. Um, <laughs> so, so number one, it is true that your Executive Order 12333 allows a pretty broad collection, extremely broad collection against non-U.S. persons overseas, unless their traffic routes through a U.S. server, in which case, and the collection is done in the United States, in which case it is part of this set of rules uh, that Congress has passed. Now, I didn't say great rules. Uh, that's Greg's uh, putting words in my mouth. What I said is neurotically detailed rules, <laughs> extensive <laughs> rules. I think there's a legitimate argument to be had about whether we have the right rules right now or whether we should tighten them. I think that's a really important discussion to have. But here's the challenge I would like to give to the Germans on the other side of this line. I can tell you, if you tell me a, a person, his nationality or her nationality and that person's location, I can tell you exactly what rules the NSA can or can't spy on that person under. And so here's my question. What are the rules under which the BND can or can't conduct surveillance of me, a non-German outside of Germany? Real quickly, what's the BND? The German Signals Intelligence Group. Uh, yeah, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, which is the German version of the CIA, I guess. Or... Yeah, it's like the German... So I'm, I'm certain you have a great expertise in, in these specifics of these rules. And on this panel, I believe there's nobody with that same expertise. Uh, so I do want to comment that the amazingly compliant NSA, uh, I have to respond to that uh, uh, quickly. Um, to be honest, I don't, I don't uh, care if the NSA was amazingly compliant uh, to their rules. As you said yourself, the rules might be bad. So if everything was so fine, then you know, what was all the fuss about and why is Snowden in such big trouble if he only reported uh, how compliant the NSA is? So, so you know, the, there, there's another side to this. I think, you know, there has been, I'll be candid, a certain amount of snickering on this side of the Atlantic over the last few months. And, you know, I want to put the reason on the table, which is that, you know, for two years since the Snowden revelations, 
we have listened as one European country after another, each of which has um, less restrictive rules than the NSA labors under and less restrictive legal restrictions, has complained about the way the United States uh, regulates signals intelligence. And so we have started this very earnest process of looking at some of those rules and you know, rewriting some of them. We have new presidential direction that acknowledges privacy rights of foreign nationals abroad for the first time, I think, in human history. And then there's an attack in Paris, and all of a sudden, European countries go dramatically in the other direction and loosen restrictions on their own intelligence services. Uh, And so you actually have this very weird effect in which the United States, which started with the most restricted intelligence uh, service in the world in the Signals Intelligence Department, getting more restrictive, while European countries free up their already relatively unregulated intelligence services to collect more aggressively. And I think at, at this point, American privacy audiences get to turn the question around and say to Europeans, you know, what's happened to you guys? I'm, I'm probably not in a good position to answer that question. I do have one comment, though, on, on, the, on this balance of security and, and, and privacy. So, yes, there's a balance, but the problem is that often in the press and by people in government, security is put as an absolute, right, um, in the sense of, you know, people will die if we don't do this or we don't do that. And nobody can respond to that by saying, oh, I don't care, right? You, of course you care. And so um, um, what I don't like is this absolute sense of, you know, security over everything. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I cannot strike a good balance either. But, um, but the argument should, should also always show the other side of the, of the, of the issue, the privacy, which does not happen much in the press. Mm-hmm. So it's always security. This leads to an interesting conversation about encryption because The Intercept recently reported that NSA Director Admiral Mike Rogers uh, said that, you know, encryption is foundational to our future and arguing about it is a waste of time. So maybe I'll put this question to the panel here in Austin. I mean, does making it impossible to access, does it make us safer as individuals or does it provide um, a haven for terrorists? Well, I think the problem is that it has the potential to do both, right? So you started out the conversation talking about the sort of trade-off or pendulum between privacy and security, but encryption is an area where you see a a trade-off between two different kinds of security. A lot of the motivation for encryption, and a lot of, for a lot of individuals, use of encryption is to shield themselves. You know, if you think about human rights advocates, minority groups, they're using encryption to shield themselves from potentially uh, you know, surveillance by the government or even more adverse action by governments. So that's one kind of security, but it does have this effect of potentially impeding national security concerns or criminal justice concerns when it also shields criminals who are deploying the same technology. So the difficulty we're facing in trying to resolve the encryption issue is that it pits different kinds of security against itself. Well, we have some more questions from the audience here in Berlin. Hi, I'm Shannon Welch. Um, I'm a student from the U.S. studying in Berlin for a semester. Um, I just had a question when it comes to social media and terrorism in the, in the form of data. Um, since the late 1990s, terror groups have been using the Internet in forums and social media to be able to recruit or to plan al-Qaeda in the late 1990s, ISIS now. Um, I was just wondering, um, ISIS right now, especially on Twitter, that's one of their main, Twitter and YouTube is one of their main ways to contact people around the world, they hide behind um, privacy and freedom of speech laws. 
Um, how does that work between private companies like Twitter um, and YouTube and places like that that don't want to impede on freedom of speech but also want to help with counterterrorism in the government? All of these companies have two relationships with U.S. law enforcement. One is very public and often quite contentious relationship, particularly after the Snowden revelations. And the other is a relationship on a day-to-day -day basis in which, you know, Twitter doesn't want ISIS people using Twitter. That's not good for Twitter. And the U.S. government doesn't want ISIS to have broad access to Twitter as a platform either. And so there are multiple levels of these relationships in which, on the one hand, they're really sparring in public, and they're sometimes litigating against each other, and they're often on the opposite sides of legislative disputes. On the other hand, they also work together on a day-to-day -day basis on a lot of narrow investigative issues, and so, some of which aren't that narrow. Okay, just one, one small comment. I mean, we, we discussed this before, how do you balance these, these issues, and of course, it is very difficult. I guess one main point here is, uh, do we trust the people who, who strike that balance? So do we trust, let's say in this case, the government, when they analyze the data, that they let's say, solely focus on these terrorist activities and throw away all the other results that they achieve? Or do we not trust the government or the other organizations that analyze this data and say, oh, by the way, I also discovered this disease outbreak over here and this left-wing activist group over there, but rather really focus on, on that topic? And, and I guess in many cases, yes, we can trust the government, but in other cases, uh, that trust has been misplaced. I think we're, we're sort of a little bit too simplistic to say it's security versus privacy. It's not like you have to give up privacy if you want security. That we can have security and privacy, we hope. And, and I think certainly in Europe there's been a sense now, and there's been a lot of press in the U.S. also, that Europeans are surveilling everybody in sight, and the U.S. is much more under control. But we're talking about the actual data privacy rules for the European citizens. So when Nathan launched the talk today, he mentioned that it was just Data Privacy Day. And in, here in Europe it was called Data Protection Day. The idea was to build awareness around the right that you have to privacy, and the European Commission was very keen to make the citizens aware that they have a fundamental right to privacy. So it's one of your fundamental human rights. You're listening to Online Data, Information, and Privacy on America Abroad. Our panelists in Austin were Benjamin Wittes from the Brookings Institution and Kristen Eikenser from UCLA. And in Berlin, we were joined by Felix Naumann from the Hasso Plattner Institute, a German think tank, Maya Indira Ganesh, who leads the activist group Tactical Technology, and Leslie Kidd Rebenbach, an attorney with Microsoft. Our moderators were KUT's Nathan Bernier and Renuka Ryasam with NPR Berlin. In a few minutes, how you can protect your privacy in an increasingly interconnected world. If you want to weigh in on this conversation, tweet us at America underscore abroad, and you can use the hashtag AAM Town Hall. You're listening to Online Data, Information, and Privacy on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. New technology enables the monitoring of our personal data in lots of ways. Take, for example, David Trinidad, a sales manager in New York. Over the holidays, he bought his wife a Fitbit, an exercise device you wear on your wrist. And it basically tracks a lot of things throughout the day, mostly your steps. So every time you take a step, it registers. It also, this model, the HR, continually tracks your heart rate. 
So it picks up changes in your heart rate from going upstairs or lifting items. Basically, it helps you try to monitor your day-to-day activity and have statistics so you can see how active you're actually being um, from one day to the next. David's wife adored her new present because it helped her monitor her overall health regimen. But a few weeks into wearing the Fitbit, she was concerned it wasn't working right. She nudges me one morning in bed, and she says, hey, I think something's wrong with the Fitbit. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, it's showing that yesterday my heart rate was pretty high all day long. Um, And she said it was a normal day for her. She wasn't really too active uh, besides going to work. So it had showed that she logged 10 hours in what they call the fat burning zone, meaning her heart rate was elevated past a certain point. Being tech savvy, David posted the problem to an online forum to see if he could crowdsource some solutions. And uh, one woman, uh, her username was That Was Unpleasant, responded, Has your wife been very stressed out lately, or is there a possibility that she's pregnant? David then told his wife to take more traditional pregnancy tests. And uh, she went home and and took a bunch of tests over the next 12 hours, and uh, they all came back positive. While David's story has a happy ending, it brings up an issue that our panelists in Austin and Berlin kept coming back to. How do individuals and governments keep pace with information technology that's growing so fast, we're not even sure how much it can do? Here's Maya Indira Ganesh from Tactical Technology. If you think about apps like Healthy Day and Sick Weather, which are supposed to help identify flu symptoms or colds and coughs in areas around you. Uh, It's not just you reporting that you have a cold or a cough, but there are apps which allow you to report on somebody in a cafe or somebody in the library and say, oh, person seen coughing. Uh, And, you know, you're not doing it to surveil the person. You just want to kind of build a database so people can protect themselves from falling sick. And we we just kind of like accept it because, oh, Johnson & Johnson built it or or whoever. But there's kind of like a certain politics around that we try to expose. Or the United Nations Global Pulse Program, which is trying to sift through uh, social media. And they have complete access to all of uh, social media to identify in advance um, disease outbreaks or epidemics in different parts of the world. So everyone is all kind of aware of how the government collects information about people, about things like education, housing crises, uh, immigration attitudes that people have and the needs that they have. So it's not really top-down, but it's let's try and take care of you. And I think that's something that needs to be unpacked, and I think citizens and states need to actually talk about how that happens. Yeah. Nathan, I'll send it back to you. It looks like your panelists maybe want to respond to that. Absolutely. A quick reaction from Ben Wittes from uh, the Brookings Institution. Ben, you had a comment. So a couple things. Um, First of all, it's an interesting thing to talk about public health uh, because that is a community in which the word surveillance is still used unironically as a positive. You know, when, when the Center for Disease Control says we have extensive surveillance on, on the Zika virus, that doesn't have big brother implications to them. That's just, uh, it's a very interesting example. I want to come back to Leslie's point about the European view of privacy as a fundamental right. Because uh, I think this actually gets to a, a lot of the core of the transatlantic privacy debate. Uh, A lot of people in the United States, and I confess that I'm one of them, view this understanding of privacy with a certain amount of skepticism and suspicion. And I, I can speak only for myself, but one of the reasons that I do is that I actually don't believe that when different communities say the word privacy, they actually mean the same thing by it. 
You know, I've thought a lot about the relationships, what Germans mean when they say privacy and what Americans mean when they say privacy. And I once did a little sort of side-by-side of it. Um, So, you know, in the United States, if you passed a law that required, as German law does, that whenever you move to a new address, you go register your location and your residence with the local police, there would be riots in the street. And those riots would be all about privacy, people's sense of privacy. You know, all of these laws are done in the name of privacy, and yet they protect radically different things in quite different ways. And so I'm actually skeptical when people say that, you know, data privacy is a fundamental human right. That seems to me to be something of a formalism to uh, enshrine what they happen to believe is the substantive content of what privacy should protect. And it doesn't actually reflect, as best as I can tell, a real shared value between different political communities. Christian, you had a point. I tend to think of this, maybe this is overly optimistic, as a sort of constructive ambiguity, that we can all think that privacy is important, even if we mean somewhat different things by it. So maybe that's a conversation that, whether it results in a treaty or not, would be a productive conversation to have to really work out what everyone is talking about and where there is overlap and difference. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, Ben, you're right. When I moved to, to Berlin, it was five, five and a half years ago, I had to, I had to register. I had to put down my, my religion, my address, and every time I move, sort of the, the German government knows where I'm moving. It definitely took me by surprise. <laughs> but I'll let Felix weigh in. He wanted to quickly kind of to, to weigh in. Okay. So... Regardless of the differences, different views in the U.S. and in Europe or in Germany, I would claim that if you reveal to an average user the data that organizations, companies, and governments know about him or her, that person would say, my privacy was invaded because of the amount of data and the things that we can deduce from that data. Everybody would say, I didn't realize that. Maybe not everybody, but many people would say, I didn't realize that. That is invading my privacy. I think that is the same in in Germany and in the U.S. and most any Western country that has these kind of surveillance systems. I just want to bring in another voice here. Paul Ohm is a professor of law at Georgetown, uh, and he's a director for the Center on Privacy and Technology. He's a member of our audience. Uh, Paul, thanks for talking to us about this. I mean, can you jump in on this? Are are, are we all talking about the same thing? Um, Not exactly. I mean, I I think it makes better radio to have an us-versus-them narrative United States versus Germany, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to get up and set the record, I think, a little straight, which is there are many voices in the United States who see privacy as a fundamental individual right, one that frankly is not really respected uh, in the government surveillance law and in the kind of way we handle corporate data. Can I pose a question? Yeah. Why do Germans still embrace Facebook as their number one social network, Google as their number one search engine? I know they work better, but it seems like there should be a movement to just abandon American services, uh, embrace counterparts that are free. We're right, but can that, can that happen? And again, Americans wouldn't be too pleased about it, but it's, it's a way to make progress on this. The, the problem is Google is really good. I mean, there's a really, really good search engine. It works great. And that's the problem. And there's no good alternative. And I, there are many alternative search engines, but I've tried many. And for me, I don't have the it's privacy settings and so on, but it's just the most convenient thing to do, and that's why it's so popular in Germany and everywhere in the world. I would love to get really quickly uh, uh, Kristen Eikenser from UCLA, her, her take on this, you know, what can we do as individuals? 
Yeah, so there, there's a quote about this that I particularly like. I think it was, if you're using a service and it's free, you're not the customer, you're the product. And I think that's important for people to, to keep in mind, and it's a very easy way to encapsulate sort of the business model for people who aren't necessarily approaching a website and thinking, what is their business model? If it's free, you're not the customer, you're the product. And in terms of, you know, just to pick up on Felix's comments, I think the problem with uptake for these more complicated means of masking or, you know, things that aren't Google is the education cost, right? So, and the usability cost. People Google things because it's easy to Google things, and it's very easy for the user on the user experience. So even if you're talking about uh, the possibility of you know, paying for additional privacy, that requires someone to make a deliberate decision and make a, a sort of hopefully an informed decision about what kind of service they're signing up for, and that is itself a cost. Maybe one thing that can give us some hope is that at one time Google was itself a startup. And so if, if there are other very easy-to-use good products out there that would sort of shift the balance on privacy, maybe they will become the next very successful startup. But I think we're a ways away from that right now. And I was just going to add that it's not, I mean, the amount of data that's being collected is just incredibly enormous. And it's not just your bank account and where you live. It's when you, you know, how many people walk through the door, how much, you know, it, it's the connection between the data coming from this Internet of Things and the an analytics that are there. And the power of computing, the power of technology that's coming, there's so much data everywhere that's being used and for good things. And Maya, I know that uh, your um, organization, Tactical Technology Collective, has been talking a little bit about, for example, insurance companies getting people to wear Fitbits to track their health uh, and some of the privacy concerns around that. I was wondering if you could address that. I will actually tell you about an interesting project out of New York that uh, attempts to reflect on this. Um, it's called Unfitbits. So they have a drill and they have a pendulum and they have a bicycle wheel and you basically attach your Fitbit to these things and, it, and uh, so you're, you're, you're racking up you know, a data count, it's active, or you attach it to your pet. And um, it's really funny, if you, it kind of also quantifies it and shows how, I think, I can't remember the name of the American insurer, but one of them is actually offering uh, a lot of reductions. I think it's like $150 or $200 a year or something, which is significant. But there's so many questions to ask about who is the individual who affords a Fitbit? What does them using it mean? Should you actually be making insurance premiums on the basis of this where people are trading personal data? So I like the idea of unfitbits to kind of hack into that idea. Renu, I just want to bring it back over to Austin really quickly just to wrap up our discussion here. And I want to give you a ch uh, both of our panelists' uh, last opportunity to have a last word. And I'm just kind of curious specifically about what your vision is for the future, what your hopes are maybe as the, the volume of data ab about us uh, only increases and uh, the capability to analyze and process that data by the private sector and by government grows as, as technology expands. Um, I think we often pretend under the rubric of the word privacy that there is a greater degree of common understanding about what the substantive value that we want to protect is and what the actors are against which we want to protect it. And so my wish is that we actually have that deep values conversation about what are particular U.S. concerns, particular German concerns that are 
not going to be internationalized or exported abroad? And what are the things that we actually share in common that we're going to treat as international norms? And I think focusing on that rather than on very specific data questions may be a way to get a deeper sense of mutual understanding in this space. Christian, can you chart us on a course for the future? My grand hope for the future here is that we'll continue having conversations like this. And the more conversations occur and the more that there's informed debate and increasingly informed debate about these issues, we'll be better able as a society or as societies to actually make informed, sort of democratically legitimate decisions governing outcomes. We'd love to throw it back to you, Renu, and get your panelists' thoughts. So uh, let, me, let me put out a more bleak uh, vision of the future, <laughs> because... Basically, what all these uh, things uh, are trying to do, uh, tracking our movement with Fitbits, tracking our cars, uh, it's about optimizing society, right? Optimizing how we move, optimizing how our cars move, optimizing our health, how we work. And, and I think we are moving towards this uh, bit by bit. And I don't have any good hope of why we shouldn't continue, because optimization is always seems good, right? Um, just in its whole, it's a problem. Well, my personal tendency is to actually be quite bleak, like like Felix, about it. But I'm actually also going to say that um, there's still so much space to be creative. Like, one of the things we say at Tactical Tech is, like, the devil is actually in the default. Can we change the notion of what the default is and actually push the boundary a little bit, ask some more questions? Because I think we are living in a kind of uh, fragile space for autonomy and individuality, and maybe we need to push against that a little bit. Thanks, Maya. And Leslie, do you have any concluding thoughts? I am optimistic because of the dialogue. I mean, I think it's just great that we're talking about these issues and looking to see, you know, the opposite view or other views and the little person's view is the only way to to move forward. And I think we're, we're doing that. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. This concludes Online Data, Information and Technology, an International Town Hall. Our panelists, Ben Wittes... Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the national security blog Lawfare. Thank you, Ben. And a huge thank you to Kristen Eikenser, who is a visiting professor at UCLA School of Law, specializing in national security law and cybersecurity. Thank you to you both. Thank you, Nathan. And I'd like to also thank our guests here in Berlin. So we have Leslie Kidd-Rabenberg from Microsoft, Maya Inderganesh from Tactical Tech, and uh, Felix Naumann from the Hassel Plattner Institute in Potsdam. As a reminder, you can follow this discussion on Twitter, at America underscore abroad. And you can join the America Abroad Facebook page. Our town hall on online data, information, and privacy was hosted by Nathan Bernier of KUT in Austin and Reynuka Ryasam with NPR Berlin. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr, with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Bobby Chesney at the University of Texas School of Law for his assistance in Austin. Audio engineering support was provided by Phil Richards and Mario Saavedra at KCRW, as well as Todd Callahan at KUT. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI.
Public Radio International.